We have the opportunity to really embrace our longevity. Booming, the podcast, offers insights and inspirations about how all of us can age successfully, how all of us can boom. My name is Marcus Riley. Welcome to Booming. At all stages of our life, money is an important factor. But when we are planning for later life, considering retirement, thinking of our investments, contemplating downsizing, our financial plans take on even greater significance. Fortunately for us, today, our discussion is with financial guru, Rachel Lane. Rachel explains how to best manage the link between our finances and our lifestyle when it comes to our future planning and aspects people may often overlook as they weigh up future options. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Rachel Lane and her expert yet practical advice. Rachel, you are the expert on the financial aspects of ageing. You advise governments, industries, uh, you work with individuals and their families, you've written books and you're a sought-after media commentator, but the issue of ageing is a very personal one for you and you have a very close relationship with your grandmother. Can you tell us how that relationship inspired your career path and, and your work over past years? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess at the time, you, you don't really think that that's what's going on. I was a relatively young financial advisor and the practice that I was working for, I guess, had two distinct parts to the business. They had a high net worth advice business. So company, family trust structures, um, self-managed super before everyone had self-managed super funds. And then this other part to the business, which was really focused on retirement living and aged care advice and had really been born out of one of the directors needing to assist his mother-in-law who moved into aged care. So I guess I just felt a natural affinity to those clients. I understood their perspective. So having grown up with my grandma, I understood how she viewed the world. I understood what was important to her. And those clients, I guess I just felt like I got them. I I, I got what was important. And from a financial advice perspective, sometimes people think that, you know, financial advice is all about money. And certainly it is, it is about money. But I always say to people that the best way I can explain it is, you know, it's like a value equation, Price is what you pay, but value is what you get for what you've paid. So to me, the value in the advice was really about having clients who felt financially secure, who would, you know, go on the cruises, who would, you know, go on the social outings, who would buy the name brand chocolate in their shopping because they just felt like they had that level of financial security. So to me, I, I really saw how the advice made a difference to them, yeah. And either from your grandmother or in the myriad circumstances that you've interacted with people around the country since then, what what have you learned from individuals themselves that has either informed your views or assisted you in, in your um, professional outlook? What, what have you taken away from other individuals? I guess the thing I've learned is that money doesn't buy happiness. It's really interesting that you can – Take somebody who isn't happy with their life and if you add more money to that, whether it's through a windfall or through some really smart financial planning, it won't necessarily make them happier. I think what I've learned about money is that money is a great magnifier. So if you 
already have or, or, or you're on a path to having a life that you want, that you enjoy, that, that gives you joy and that you have value in, I guess, then money can amplify that. But I don't think money, and, and there'll be a whole lot of people listening to this going, well, you know what, if I win Tats Lotto, I'm going <laughs> to prove this girl wrong. <laughs> but my, my argument to that would be, but my guess is you're already happy. So even though I am a money person, I just don't necessarily subscribe to the theory that money will make you happy. Sure. And I guess the extension to that is if I'm in a negative frame, if I'm in a particular state, then again, money isn't going to get me out of that. It's going to accentuate it. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. It's it's amazing. I guess over the years, you know, I've seen this manifest itself in both ways. I've seen it for the positive and for the negative and how money can make people suspicious and they think that friends aren't really friends anymore or they think that people are out to try and get that money off them and you know money money really is a great magnifier of whatever is already kind of at the heart or at the kernel of of that person so given that uh and given the increased longevity that most people are going to now enjoy or potentially enjoy how important are our financial circumstances to aging successfully of course <laughs> fundamentally you've got to be able to afford it and that's why I get really upset when transactions get misrepresented. You know, it's retirement villages are a classic example where sometimes the person who's giving financial advice doesn't understand the value of someone moving into a retirement village. So this person wants to move into this retirement village, is, is going to enjoy it, is going to enjoy the activity, is going to enjoy the, the change of lifestyle, is going to enjoy you know the social inclusion, is going to take advantage of the facilities at their fingertips, all of those sorts of things. And if what you've got is a person advising them, whether that person is a financial advisor, you know, accountant, lawyer, someone who's a professional charged with that, or whether they're not a professional person but they're a, they're a trusted advisor, yeah. being a family member or something like that, that person might just look at the exit fee and, if you like, weigh that person's scale. So they might look at it and say, well, I've calculated this exit fee and it's going to cost you 30% and 30% of $600,000 is near enough to $200,000. That's a bad investment but you're not the one that's going to get the benefit from it. You know, you can't do that to someone else. You can't say to someone else, I'm going to weigh the scale for you. I'm going to decide what your lifestyle choices and what your... Because accommodation, I think, you know, we're obviously meant to be talking about ageing and longevity, but accommodation is so central to the lifestyle that people are going to have, their happiness levels, how safe and secure they feel, how socially engaged they are. Where you live is probably the biggest question that you have to ask if you're looking at, you know, what what you want your retirement years to look like. Sure. And if we look at social determinants of health, housing, where where we live and in what sort of dwelling is is a huge factor in, in regards to that. I love that line, somebody else can't weigh the scales for you. I think that's uh, that's a great analogy. So coming back to longevity and used the words, we have to be able to afford it. So what are some of the key factors or considerations? Again, given most of us have got a longer later life now, 
what do we need to be able to afford? What are some of the key considerations there? Sure. So the new book, which is all about downsizing, looks at all of the options people have got in their retirement years while they're still living independently. So we're not talking at all about residential aged care. We're talking about, I guess, um, traditional downsizing options, things that people already know and and think of when they hear the word word downsize. So things like um, strata title apartments and townhouses, granny flats and retirement villages. But then we also look at some of the the more modern, um, I guess, housing options like uh, land lease communities where you own the home and lease the land on which it sits. Um, Collaborative housing is really starting to to find its own feet. And collaborative housing I find really interesting because it's something that the scale is almost, you know, anything from two houses on a suburban block through to an eco village with 350 houses in it and anything in between. It's a really interesting accommodation choice. Can you just give us a bit more of a description about this model of collaborative housing? Mm. So I guess, you know, if we go back to the 60s and 70s, people would have called it a hippie commune, right? <laughs> so, and, and they do take on different forms in terms of the, the legal contract. Yes. And it's, it's really, really important that people understand their contract, whether it's a collaborative housing contract or any other form of contract. But collaborative housing... I guess the reason I see it a lot is I have quite a good relationship with my mum. She's a baby boomer. And I I hear these conversations at different barbecues and parties, you know, that we that we go to together where where her friends are and they all say the same thing, which is, oh, you know, when we retire, let's all build six houses and we each live in our own house and we'll have a centralized area and that'll have a swimming pool and a barbecue and we'll share a chef and we'll share a cleaner. And if the time comes that we need aged care, we'll get that person in as well and we'll all share all of these wonderful services. And that really is the heart of collaborative housing. And there's a great example in the book of a group of friends who have done exactly that. They're called the Shedders. But that really is the heart of it is you have your own private space and then you have other spaces that you share. And and some of these housing arrangements also share, so they might share dining rooms, laundries, in some cases, kitchens. In other cases, they also share cars, bikes, gardening tools, caravans, whatever. And, And it really is completely dependent on that community and what they decide their rules are going to be. And in some cases, they have rules that say, well, you can move in here and you can live in this particular dwelling because you've got, you know, two adults and two children. But when those two children move out, you have to move to a smaller dwelling to make way for somebody who needs the bigger dwelling. You know, they can have all sorts of rules associated with them. So you get things that are quite, I guess, boutique where it's a group of friends And then you get things that are quite big, like there's a group in Melbourne called Nightingale, and they build sort of 30, 40 apartments, seven-star, green rating, no car parks. So so the assumption is no one will drive a car. They harvest all their water, all their power is solar power. And these, you know, what would have been called in the past hippie communes, are open for people to sort of ballot. So they, they... express an interest in it, they put down a deposit. It's really like crowdfunding the the development. So they uh, people then selected 
the nominations are assessed and the the collective then approves who may be invited into that environment. Is that how it works? Yeah, and you have to put down a, a reasonable size yes. deposit. There's restrictions around what the architect and the builder and you know everyone involved in the actual building process are allowed to make as a profit, so it's profit restricted. And I guess they're looking for people who share a common interest or share a common way of looking at the world. Um, and yeah, I, I think they're really, really interesting. Whereas some of the other stuff, like there's another, uh, there's an eco village called Narara Eco Village, which is on an old government site in New South Wales. And that's different. People are building their own houses and, you know, there's all sorts of really interesting houses that are being built as part of that development and they they shared big communal dining spaces and you know there's a whole set of rules that they all agree to live by sure and i think the great thing about all those different models and concepts is it's allowing people to to choose a an option that best aligns with what's important to them and and obviously affordability as you've highlighted earlier is is crucial and that brings us to uh looking at the family home and obviously that's looked at almost in a unique way in Australia as far as how we view the, the family home. We go to great lengths to protect it. It can become the point of conflict within families. It is a great challenge for government in terms of their policies around older people in particular. You have pioneered uh, new thinking about how we treat the, the home, obviously coming from a financial perspective. Can you tell us about those ideas and what options it creates for people? Well, I guess the thing is that a lot of people – cling to the family home with a sense of if I have the house, I have independence and I have prosperity and, and wealth and, and all of those things. And, and that might be true, but if you're living in that home and you're socially isolated, you don't feel safe, you don't know your neighbours anymore because a lot of the time suburbs have changed. And for a lot of people that I talk to, they say, well, you know, 30 years ago, we knew all of our neighbours, you know, and we and we saw them on a regular basis during the week and on the weekend because the kids would play in the front yard and people would go from how, you know, there was can the I... the corner store and... Yeah, and can I borrow a cup of flour, a cup of sugar, whatever it might have been. And they say, look, neighbourhoods aren't like that anymore. All the houses are built with the front of the house being a garage door and people drive in and the door comes down. And it's almost like a compound. Like We may not even know who our neighbours are. Yeah. So I think one of the things I guess I'm finding interesting is this breakdown in community that certainly existed when I was growing up. I mean, that's all we used to do is ride our bikes around to each other's houses, swim in each other's swimming pools and, you know, just generally everybody knew everybody. Play cricket on a hot day, whatever was going. So I think the, the family home is important. And I'm not saying to people that they should sell their family home if that's not the decision that they want. Yes. But I think there's so many different definitions now of home. You know, it may be a granny flat. When I say a granny flat, you know, if you see some of the things that are being built under the term sort of, and I'm doing the quotation marks in the air, but under the term granny flat, you know, these mod pods and um all these things that can be built. Limited by imagination at the yeah, moment. It's yeah, it's unbelievable. Some of, And even the land lease communities, you know, people think, oh, it must be like those homes that are out the back of a, a caravan park and it's, you know, really small and and yet you've got some people who are building two and three-storey high prefab homes in, in land lease communities with 
piers for you to park your boat and your jet ski and all that sort of stuff. So there's so many options, I guess, for people to call home. That being said, whatever you choose to call home is going to have a contract attached to it. And it's really important to understand that contract. And a lot of the time people look at their contract, whether it's, well, the biggest problem with granny flats is often they don't get a contract. So, yes. you know, if anyone's thinking about going into a granny flat ar- arrangement, have a contract. This is between families, you mean? Yeah. That- people think, oh, no, I don't need to have a contract with family. That's weird and icky and, you know, I don't want to have that conversation and it seems a bit unusual. And But the problem with not having a contract is that everybody comes in with unspoken expectations. You know, and, and often the expectations are, you know, mum's moving in and she thinks, well, this is terrific. My daughter and son-in-law are going to look after me forever and ever, amen. And I get unlimited access to the grandchildren. And the kids think, well, this is terrific. We get our Saturday nights back. We've got a built-in babysitter. Great theory. Right? Uh, and if mum ever needs more care and support, well, she'll understand and she'll move into a nursing home. You know, those things need to be spoken. And and I think the hardest thing with granny flats is everyone wants to talk about when it starts and everyone wants to talk about what it's going to be like because it's going to be it's going to be fun. You know, we're going to have three generations under one roof or certainly on one title and this is going to be terrific, but no one wants to talk about when it ends. And yet when it ends is the most important bit to talk about. And what does mum or dad or both get back? Oftentimes that causes a dispute where they say, well, I've given you this money sort of as an interest-free loan and I might need it to draw on to fund my aged care. And kids say, well, no, it was a gift and we've spent it and the money, you know. So it's just really, really important um, to understand your contract and Whatever it is, whether it's a granny flat, retirement village, a land lease community, a a collaborative housing arrangement, strata title, people think, oh, strata title, you know, that's like freehold. No, strata title, you've got to be part of an owner's corporation. Um, There's all sorts of responsibilities that go beyond the four walls you live in for the swimming pool and the tennis court and the gymnasium and the car parking. Car parking's always a fun one. (laughs) (laughs) And storage cages. There's wine storage these days. But, you know, you have to have a contract and you have to look at it not just from the point of view of what do I pay and what you pay is important, but you need to look at it also from the point of view of what are my rights and what are my responsibilities. So, One of the exercises that that we give people is to look at their contract and break it down into what are my rights, what are my responsibilities, what are my costs, and then to make sure that they're looking at it over time. So not just what is it up front, you know, how much am I paying as a purchase price, what does stamp duty cost, not just that bit, but also what do I pay along the way? What are my rights while I'm living here? What are my responsibilities? And then what do I pay and what do I get back when I leave? What are my rights? What are my responsibilities? Because even though there's all these different downsizing options and you know we're kind of putting a big umbrella over a lot of different things, each one is completely different. And so, you know, retirement villages, some of them will offer you a guaranteed buyback, for example. Some of them now have no exit fee options. 
granny flats typically because of the way the social security rules work are done as a gift. You don't have any legal ownership and typically when you leave, there's no residual value. Then you've got other things like strata title and people think, well, that's the the cheapest and it's also the thing that gives me the greatest amount of rights. Well, it does give you a lot of rights, not the same as freehold, but it does give you a lot of rights, but it also gives you a lot of responsibilities. And one of the things that we've seen in Melbourne and Sydney in particular in the last little while is that the buildings themselves have cost the owner's corporation, which is all of the people you know who own apartments within the building, a lot of money through special levies, either because the building has got cladding or the building has got significant defects. I had a friend of mine who's in a relatively small apartment block. I think there's 12 in her apartment block. And there was an issue, a significant issue with her building and the levy just for her and her husband was just over $80,000. So when you're talking about affordability, you've got to look at these things and look at can I afford that? And you've got to look into the body corporate and go, what's already been in the minutes of the body corporate meetings or the owners corporation meetings? What's already existing here as a liability? Because the last thing you want to do is buy that and not know that you're going to be up for that levy in the future. What are the scenarios that could play out and need to be forward thinking in that regard and the the what ifs that could play out and, and have a significant cost to me? All these types of factors that are really important to our financial capacity through later life. Do you think we're having the conversations in families enough at the moment to ensure that people are aware of these sorts of issues and planning for them and and taking necessary actions? Absolutely not. Because most people think if they bring up the topic of aged care or even retirement villages, you know, most people think if we start talking about that, it's a slippery slope to a nursing home. And, and yet that's not the reality. You know that as well as I do, that you know more than 1.3 million people received aged care services in this country last year and about 240,000 got that through an aged care facility. So this idea that if we start talking about as we age, where are we going to live, that we're on some slippery slope you know, into residential aged care, it's just not true. In fact, I would go as far as to say that if you open up that conversation and say, look, if you don't want, if you're one of the people that says, I'm not going into residential aged care, you know, the, the old, you can take me out in a pine box, you know, th- this conversation, then okay, then where will you go? And, and how will you get your care? And, and the accommodation that you live in is so important. People need to be looking at their accommodation and thinking about, okay, if I was recovering from an operation, if I needed a, a walking frame, if I needed a wheelchair, if I needed someone to help me have a shower, is this accommodation going to enable that to happen? Because while a lot of people, when they talk about aged care and you know, they'll say things like, well, you know, when I need aged care, it's coming to me. And, um, and I always say, but you know it's not Uber Eats, right? You know that you can't just dial it up on your phone, 20 minutes later, ding dong, I'm here with the care. It doesn't... Well, not yet anyway. Well, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't work like that. You know, at the moment we've got people waiting yeah. two and three years for a home care package. It's, it's ridiculous. So the thing, I guess, is 
not having those conversations and not planning for it is actually what is most likely going to mean that you end up in residential aged care. If what you truly want is to live somewhere as independently as possible with the care and other support services, you know, for the things that you either can't do for yourself or you don't want to do for yourself, then you have to plan for that. Simply staying in the family home, bricks and mortar in the suburbs and saying, well, I'm not going anywhere isn't going to stop you from winding up in residential aged care. Yeah. And to the contrary, it limits your options potentially more and more. Well, that's the problem. with When you shut down the conversation like that, it, it means that you're not really giving anyone any other options to, to put in front of you. Whereas if you said, well, what what are my options? Even if you just did it on your own and went, okay, well, actually I'm, I'm kind of interested. So many people say to me, I've moved into this uh, retirement community, Rachel. It's my preemptive strike <laughs> against going into aged care. And I say, good for you. Yeah. Because you know what? The odds of you not going into residential aged care are far greater than if you had have stayed at home. Yeah. So good for them for making that decision and making that move. And, and I guess doing the research, but also feeling empowered. That's that's really what, what I like to help people is to feel empowered with their decisions. Absolutely, to have, have control. And of course, a, a big key to that is planning as early as possible. Yes. And let people do it with you, not to you, you know? And, and, yeah. and if you shut down those conversations, you really push it to a point where people are doing it to you rather than with you. Yeah. And in that spirit of, of earlier planning, what are some of the headline issues that people should be considering and factoring into their own planning as they hit particular phases? So be it approaching retirement or more downsizing or making particular lifestyle choices and, and plans. What are some of those headline issues that, that people should really be having on the top of their lists? Well, I think the biggest question you've got to ask yourself is why? So everyone has different reasons for, for moving and you need to understand your why. There's always going to be things that you want to leave behind. There's always going to be things that you're running towards. And there's always going to be things that you want to take with you. So so having a good sense of what, what am I trying to change? What am I trying to keep the same? You know, that's the first exercise we get people to do is, is understand your why if you're thinking about downsizing. Understanding where is also important because location, it really is important. What do you want to be close to? Do you want to be close to family and friends? Or is it is it almost impossible to be close to family because they're spread all over the country or all over the world? In which case you might want to be close to an airport because you might want regular visitors or you might want to travel regularly. Thinking about, you know, do you really want a sea change or a tree change or do you just want a smaller home that's in your current community. You know, some sometimes people want the sea change or the tree change, but then they look at it and they go, well, the medical facilities aren't as good as what I've got where I live now, or I think I'm going to be socially isolated because, you know, I've got my bridge club or my bowls club or my senior citizens or whatever it is and all my connections. So you've really got to think about where that's a really important part and then the, the the third step is understand what you're signing what what is it that you're agreeing to and what does that impose on you in terms of costs rights and responsibilities 
How should those plans or those factors be considered differently if I'm a single person or if I'm in a, a couple? Yeah, well, I guess the the thing with ageing is that everybody's different and it's not uncommon to see couples where one partner is significantly older than the other one and that's not necessarily a predeterminant that that person is going to age quicker or they're, you know, they're going to have health care needs that are greater. But it is quite common to see two members of a couple with very different care needs when the need for care arises. So if you're a couple and you're looking at making this move, and certainly we see a lot of people make this move, particularly into retirement living, where one person starts to need care because they need that what I call care infrastructure around them. They need the accommodation that's built for the delivery of care. They need the carers on site so that they can push a button and someone comes. They might need someone to prepare their meals. So they're they're trying to get all of that around them and, and moving into a retirement community gives them, if you like, instant care infrastructure. Sometimes it's because there's residential aged care on the same site and, and one person will live independently in, in the village and the other person will live in the aged care facility. But it's important to look at it from the point of view of how will you age in place, whatever you move into. And I always say to people, even if you don't need care today, if your ambition is that this will be your last move, then just ask the question, what happens if I need care? And look at the environment and and look at the services that you can get and look at what it costs and just make sure that you know um, what's out there. There's a lot of government-funded services. A lot of people instantly think of home care packages, but the reality is most people get Commonwealth Home Support Program. And there's some really terrific programs out there that are kind of like a preemptive strike against home care packages, like short-term restorative care, to help keep people out of long-term care. So I always say explore your options and explore them early because the earlier you look at them, the more options you've got. And actually the best option might be a short-term rehabilitative type care program that keeps you away from needing a home care package or away from needing residential aged care, even if it's just for another 12 months or something. Yeah. The the earlier planning, again, more options, greater control, and more choices available to us that are aligned with our priorities, our our preferences. Rachel, just want to move to a series of questions now, which are slightly more personal. Okay. And <laughs> more sort of rapid fire, so you can give brief responses to these if, if that's cool. What concerns you about your own ageing? Oh, gosh. I guess being a parent is, you know, who's going to look after my daughter more than sure. more than anything. Yeah. Um, is... is I think once you become a parent, your your focus completely shifts to, you know, what what do I need to do to to look after, yeah. you know, the little ones. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's probably my focus there. What gives you confidence about your aging? Well, hopefully, I know how to navigate the system. <laughs> <laughs> I guess because I know that there's so many options, and and I know how terrific some of those options can be, and I think. You know, that, that's probably one of the, the things I want people to know is, you know, what, what you saw your parents, you know, what you saw as their options 20 or 30 years ago and what the options are that are available to you. I mean, they're so different. It's moving you fast. Know, yeah, just get out there and have, have a look at it. Like whether it's a granny flat or a retirement villa, just get out there and have a look at what's available yeah. because you, you will probably be pleasantly surprised. Sure. What have you seen – perhaps 
hold people back as they've aged? I think sometimes people leave it too late. I think there's a there's a point in time where you can make a move, whether it's, you know, downsizing or whatever whatever you want to call that move, and you have the confidence and you have the information you need and I think sometimes that window closes and then people lose confidence, they they don't know what to do and yeah, so I think that's probably the the biggest issue. And and there's also a lot of assumptions that people so instead of doing the research, looking at what's there, understanding what it means for their pension entitlement, understanding what they're going to pay as an exit fee. Sometimes people listen to the radio, the TV, the newspaper. Of course, you know, my column is very reliable, but you know, they they, they listen to these stories and they think that that's going to apply in their circumstances and it might not. So it's really about don't don't assume, you know. My, my grandma would always say to, to assume makes an ass out of you and me. So don't assume, do, do your homework and work yeah. out what it means for you. And whilst you're at a younger age, have you made plans for your later stages of life? Oh, look, if it was up to me, I would move into a retirement community tomorrow. Um, my, my husband being a lawyer is not such a people person, um, but I, I, I love, you know, and, and my grandma moved into a retirement village, you know, about a decade ago now. And, um, and she said the same thing that I've heard so many people say, which is, oh, I just wish I did it sooner. You know, I just, I just wish I could have gone back in time. And when I first started thinking about it, but I, you know, I wasn't sure, um, I just wish I could do, do it then. Um, and so to me, because I've heard so many people say that, um, and I can see how um, that all, all of the activities and all of the facilities that, that essentially the, the younger you move in, the more bang you get for your buck. Not that it's all about money, but um, talking about kind of putting life into years as opposed to just putting years into life, um, that, you know, that kind of is my ideal, whereas my husband's ideal is to live on a deserted island with no one but me. <laughs> so I don't know how we're quite going to reconcile that, but yeah. You try not to weigh each other's scales, I guess. That's but, it. Um, which older person has inspired you and why? Oh, well, yeah, definitely my grandma growing up with her. Um, she's uh, she's she's a pretty inspirational lady and, uh, I mean, some of her logic Perhaps isn't quite right, you know. Some of the, so she's she's done some things over the over the years to save money, we, you know, like putting her car in neutral and rolling down the hills. <laughs> she she lives out in the Yarra Valley, um, and that wasn't necessarily the best thing to do. But you know, um, she's uh, you know she's raised four kids, and she she lost her husband at the very young age of forty seven, uh, and then. Uh, had a heart attack two days later, which is how she came to be living with my mum and I, my mum being the oldest um, daughter and then, you know, helped to look after me. And she's she's one tough cookie. She might she might be little, but she's tough. She's Scottish. So she, she would just say, well, I'm Scottish. What do you expect? So, Rachel, thank you very much for your insight and your inspiration. Thanks for having me. Great to have you with us. Thanks. Well, thanks to Rachel for sharing her knowledge and expertise. Planning is a crucial element in our formula for successful ageing and of course our finances are a key part of our plans so it is worth considering how you obtain your financial information and whether you would benefit from advice to aid your future plans. 
It's important to note though that a financial advisor needs to understand issues specific to later life, retirement, funding of future services, potentially downsizing, etc. So be selective about who you seek your advice from. Thank you for listening to Booming the Podcast. For more booming content, please go to our website, booming.net.au. We'd love to hear from you, so please connect with us through the website, through the booming Facebook and Instagram pages, and please subscribe to the podcast on your chosen platform. Thanks for listening, and happy booming.